Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. In the history of the church, its words were written in the 1770s in England by a man named John Newton, who many of you probably know was involved in the African slave trade before his conversion later in life. The New Testament's most prolific champion of the message of grace is the Apostle Paul, who is kind of this terrorist kind of person who was overseeing the execution of Christians before his conversion on the road to Damascus. And perhaps you sense some kind of embarrassment or awkwardness that the most familiar notes of grace have been sounded by people such as this, John Newton and the Apostle Paul. I mean, wouldn't the credibility of the church be better off if those who were its strongest proponents of grace before the watching world were people with cleaner, more socially acceptable track records? Wouldn't it be better for the church that way? The answer to that question is actually no. And it's because of this. Grace will not be recognized or celebrated as amazing grace except by those who recognize that it has saved a wretch like them. It will only be recognized as amazing grace by those who know they once were lost but now are found. And so how about you this morning? Do you find grace amazing? Truly amazing? Are you amazed that God's grace has saved you? Now the story of Zacchaeus that we've read is familiar to most of you, partly because of the children's song that many of us are familiar with. Zacchaeus was a wee little man. A wee little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore tree, the Lord he wanted to see. But this story of amazing grace and a sycamore tree is not just for children. It has important truths about grace to teach all of us. And Luke records this story and records these important lessons about amazing grace for us by showing us first an object of amazing grace. And then secondly, he shows us an operation of amazing grace. And then finally, he'll show for us also an opposition to amazing grace. And so as we want to unpack these verses this morning with the help of the Holy Spirit, those are the three points that I want us to consider this morning, beginning with first an object of amazing grace. Now, just to set this in context, this episode takes place as Jesus is passing through Jericho, which is a town about 20 miles outside of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, which he will enter later in this chapter in verses 28 through 40, and he enters on Palm Sunday, the last week of Jesus' earthly ministry. So this whole episode occurs late in the ministry of Jesus. But before there's this crowd at Palm Sunday shouting Hosanna, there's this crowd that gathers in the town of Jericho because apparently word gets out that this pack is approaching the town. And in the midst of that pack is Jesus of Nazareth. And this generated a buzz, much like it would probably generate a buzz if Peyton Manning or Tim Tebow or the royal couple were to be passing through Yorktown on Main Street, probably generate a buzz because people had heard of this one who many regarded to be a prophet, who taught the people in parables with authority and with wisdom and who worked miracles. And so perhaps the street of Jericho was lined with mothers and fathers who had heard that Jesus blessed the little children. Or perhaps it was crammed with the suffering or heard that this is one who healed the sick. But maybe most people were there in Jericho just to catch a glimpse of Jesus, maybe to get an autograph, 
or to take a selfie with him. Oh, wait a minute, there weren't cell phones back at that time, even though it's hard for us to remember a time when there weren't cell phones. But one such resident who was wanting to see Jesus is Zacchaeus, whose name means clean or just or innocent. And that's worth noting because of the irony. Luke tells us a number of things about this Zacchaeus. First, he tells us in verse 2 that Zacchaeus is a chief tax collector. Tax collectors were employed by the Romans, but were often known to collect more from the people than Rome actually required for taxation in order to line their own pockets. And so they didn't have a reputation for being just. In fact, because they willingly aligned themselves with the foreign oppressors of Rome and willingly exploited their own people, they were among the most despised citizens of the Jews in Jesus' day. And note that Zacchaeus isn't just a tax collector. He's a chief tax collector. He's a leader of the tax collectors. And so he would have enjoyed some amount of power and social privilege and wealth as well. In fact, Luke is explicit in telling us that Zacchaeus was rich. And yet, he's detested and loathed by the covenant people of his day, regarded as unclean. He belongs to the wrong group of people. And so depending on your perspective, Zacchaeus is the Democrat who doesn't care for the unborn. Or he's the Republican who doesn't care enough about social justice issues. He's the liberal who's raising funds for Planned Parenthood. Or he's the conservative who supports the NRA. Or perhaps he's not any of those things, but he's the lawyer who defends known guilty criminals in order to get rich. Hardly the object of amazing grace that we might expect. But we're also told that he was seeking to see who Jesus was in verse 3. Now we're not told why he's seeking to see who Jesus was. Maybe he's just curious. Maybe his money's not keeping him warm at night and he feels like something is lacking. Maybe his conscience is troubled because of his ill-gotten gain or because of his lifestyle. Or maybe he just wants to be compassionately embraced like we all do. And maybe he's heard that this Jesus eats with and welcomes even tax collectors like him. In fact, one of his own disciples used to be a tax collector, Matthew. Maybe Zacchaeus knew or knows Matthew. They don't know. And maybe you're here this morning for one of those similar reasons. Maybe you're here this morning just because you're curious. You've heard certain things about this Jesus and you're curious to know more. Maybe there's something missing or lacking in your life and you're feeling discontent and dissatisfied. Maybe you've come with a conscience that's burdened by sins in your life or by your lifestyle that you know needs to change. Or maybe you're lonely and you just want to be compassionately embraced. Maybe you're here this morning and you're lost. But whatever your coordinates are, you can be found as an object of amazing grace, just like Zacchaeus. But Zacchaeus still has a problem here. His problem is actually the same problem as the blind beggar had who was healed just before this story at the end of Luke chapter 18, verses 35 through 43. His problem is he can't see. But it's not because he's blind. He can't see because he's short. And it's possible that this crowd who despises Zacchaeus is intentionally obscuring Zacchaeus' view of Jesus. And I don't really want this guy to to see him anyway. 
But Zacchaeus is shrewd. He doesn't rise to the ranks of chief tax collector for nothing. And so in verse 4, we read that he ran on ahead, climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for Jesus was about to pass that way. Now, likely for a privileged, wealthy individual at that time to climb a tree would have been viewed as somewhat undignified. And yet Zacchaeus is willing to undergo a certain amount of shame just to catch a glimpse of Jesus. But we don't know why. And maybe we're not told why he was wanting to see Jesus because Zacchaeus isn't the main seeker here. Yes, Zacchaeus is seeking to see Jesus, but Jesus enters into Jericho seeking to see Zacchaeus as one who is lost and needs to be found. Zacchaeus may not be aware of it, but he climbs that tree not just so he can see Jesus, but so Jesus can see him and perform an operation of amazing grace. And so as this story continues, the pack moves along until Jesus gets to the place where Zacchaeus had climbed this tree. And then this motorcade with no motors stops right underneath where Zacchaeus is. I mean, what are the, what are the chances of that? Zacchaeus must be thinking in his head, I couldn't have picked a better spot. I have a perfect view. And then, then, Jesus looks up. And it's hard to know what Zacchaeus wanted or expected to happen on this occasion. It's probably not what happened next. Because in verse 5, Jesus says his name. Zacchaeus. He knows me. He knows my name? How is he calling me out by name? Zacchaeus, hurry and come down. We're almost stay at your house today. Jesus takes the initiative and invites himself to Zacchaeus' house for the day. Now in Jewish culture, one did not eat with one's enemies or with people regarded to be unclean as the Jews of Jesus' day and the people of Jericho would have considered Zacchaeus to be. But Jesus makes a request for hospitality from Zacchaeus and implied in that makes a request for a meal which would have symbolized his friendship with this chief tax collector. I want you to witness with me here the complete lack of partiality in the ministry of Jesus. A complete lack of partiality. Jesus offered grace and compassion to the weak and to the oppressed, to the marginalized, to the outcast, to the lame, to the women and to the children. And he offered grace and compassion to the powerful and to the oppressors, chief tax collectors, Roman centurions, and corrupt religious leaders. He offered it to everybody. That doesn't seem to be the way our society is currently working, does it? We might grant or we might like to talk about granting grace and compassion, but only to certain kinds of people with the right kinds of social labels. Certainly not grace to the powerful, to the rich, and to those who misuse their power. We're living in a time where there is no grace for certain kinds of people, no second chances for certain violations, and no genuine transformation to be believed among certain kinds of opponents. You know, we kind of operate in many ways along these lines. We view people outside of our party or our tribe as suitable objects of hatred and scorn because everyone else is wrong 
They need to be condemned or silenced. I'm trusting that sounds somewhat familiar to the atmosphere that we're breathing in. But do we learn that from the Bible and from Jesus' ministry? It seems that Jesus viewed people, regardless of social label, as suitable objects not of our hatred and our scorn, but as suitable objects of amazing grace. Not to be silenced and condemned, but because everyone outside of Jesus is lost. Yes, lost because of the wickedness and rebellion of their own hearts. Lost of their own accord, yes. But lost nevertheless. And people who need to be found. Notice the stark contrast between these two approaches. And ask yourself, which one am I? How do I tend to view people? People are different than me. People in different classes than me. Do I tend to view them as objects of hate and scorn or as objects of amazing grace, people who are lost and need to be found? Now, at the same time, it's important that we realize, though, that grace is amazing not only because it welcomes unworthy sinners and outcasts and it forgives them. Grace is amazing also because it transforms sinners. It doesn't just welcome and forgive, it transforms. Grace never obscures the truth. It never ignores, overlooks, or minimizes the reality of sin or oppression or the misuse of power or any kind of sin for that matter. Grace addresses sin and transforms lives. Zacchaeus undergoes a transformation here because of amazing grace. We see in verse 6 that he received Jesus joyfully and then we witness his repentance in verse 8. Listen to what he says. Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. Half of his goods. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. That he has likely not been an honest collector who's acted in integrity is suggested here by this promise to repay anyone he's defrauded fourfold, which well exceeds what would have been required by Old Testament law in Leviticus chapter 2, verses 2 through 6, which simply required adding a fifth to what had been taken. Zacchaeus promises to repay anyone fourfold that he is defrauded, which makes it clear here that what we're witnessing is not merely an offer of amazing grace. What's happening in Luke chapter 19 is an operation of amazing grace affected by the power of Jesus to transform a life and give a new heart. So Jesus can say in verse 9, today salvation has come to this house. Salvation is evident in this house. Because let's keep this in mind when we talk about salvation. Jesus didn't come to save us in our sins, but he came to save us from our sins. He came to make unjust people just, oppressive people, compassionate people, and loving people, and generous people. He came to make the impure pure. He came to rescue and deliver people like John Newton, from their slave trade and the apostle Paul from their persecution and he came to rescue and deliver us from our bondage to sin. That's the reality of grace. Grace is amazing because it transforms. So it's right for us to ask ourselves, has salvation truly come to our house? Has salvation come to your house? Do you know the reality of this 
transforming grace in your life? Are there things about your life that are different because of Jesus? Because Jesus is in your life. Does the way that you love and serve others reflect this transformed life and changed heart? Are your relationships different because of Jesus? Your marriage, the way you treat your spouse, the way you parent, the way you use your tongue, words that you say and words that you won't say because of Jesus. The way that you interact and engage on social media, is it different because of Jesus? Do you pursue purity, work differently, use your time differently, prioritize, choose, and refuse certain kinds of entertainment because of Jesus? And is the way that you deny yourself for the sake of other people reflective of this amazing grace that transforms? Or have you only really experienced an operation of what Dietrich Bonhoeffer referred to as cheap grace, which is really no true grace at all. It's a fake grace. What Bonhoeffer was referring to with cheap grace was enjoying and liking the idea of the forgiveness of sins with no corresponding commitment to holy living and costly discipleship. In other words, grace with no transformation. (laughs) But for Zacchaeus, he once was lost and now is found. Found by amazing, transforming grace from Jesus and his life is different. Is that true for you? Can you say that your life is different because of amazing grace? Still, the order is important here. We don't transform our lives in order to get Jesus to welcome us or give us grace. The order is important. It was grace free and undeserved that rescued Zacchaeus. It's critical that we remember that verse 8 follows verse 5 here in our text. Verse 8 follows verse 5. And we must not inverse that order for us or for others so that we can make sure that what we're celebrating is amazing grace, free, undeserved, and demerited because of our sins. But not everyone is going to rejoice and celebrate this amazing grace because they don't rejoice and celebrate with Zacchaeus this amazing grace in a sycamore tree we actually have an opposition to amazing grace as well we see this opposition in verse 7 when the people of Jericho saw this whole transaction they grumbled he has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner you see they only can see Zacchaeus through the label that they've assigned to him he's a sinner He's not an object of amazing grace who's been transformed. He's not someone who was once lost but now is found. He's only a sinner. And that's all Zacchaeus can be. It sounds like the people of Jericho are much like we seem today that are slow to accept any genuine transformation reformed or reform in the life of those that they oppose. Which is why we see things that people said 10 years ago or when they were teenagers being brought up again to smear someone or to get them fired from positions. Because we're slow to accept any genuine transformation in the people that we oppose. And the people of Jericho just had to be thinking of all the people that Jesus could spend the day with here in Jericho. It's Zacchaeus. But just like the people of Jericho as well, sometimes we can stand in opposition to grace. We can stand in opposition to grace 
for those who are in the wrong party or those who are on the wrong side of the culture war. Sometimes the thing that obstructs the view of those who are seeking to see Jesus the most are those who claim to be God's people. Sometimes the thing that people find most repugnant about Christianity is Christians. Not all the time, but sometimes. And maybe not any of us in this room, but maybe. Maybe you. Maybe me. Maybe my opposition to grace has gotten in the way of people who were wanting to see who Jesus was and to see the reality of his grace. I interpret statistics pretty cautiously, but at least, here's something for us at least to consider. Okay? Among people with no evangelical friends, this comes out of the Billy Graham Center research, among people with no evangelical Christian friends, they don't know any evangelicals or at least count them as friends, only 14% described evangelical Christians with one of these words, compassionate, principled, charitable, or ethical. At least to those outside the faith, those are not words that come to mind when they think about evangelical Christians, at least very often, just 14%. Now that number increases among people with evangelical friends to 46%. When you first look at that, you think, well, it's like three times as many. But stop and think about that. That's less than half of the people who claim to have an evangelical Christian friend who would describe evangelical Christians as compassionate, principled, charitable, or ethical. And doesn't that at least force us to ask whether we are reflecting and projecting the reality of grace to others? The reality of compassion and principle and ethics and charity. Still at the same time, we do have to acknowledge people adopt these views for all kinds of reasons. And the people of Jericho are grumbling as much about Jesus as they are about Zacchaeus in verse 7. He has gone into the house of someone who is a sinner. Well, why did he have to go into his house? To enter someone's house and to eat with that person would have been regarded as the Jews as sharing in that person's sin, sharing in Zacchaeus' uncleanness and his corruption. I mean, couldn't he just have invited him to the synagogue? Couldn't he have just taken him to the temple where he could have given away some of that money he's talking about? Why did he have to go into his house? It's a very intimate thing in that culture. But Jesus didn't come into our world to keep sinners at arm's length. And he reminds us of his mission here in verse 10. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus entered into our world on the greatest rescue mission ever. But here's why that's such amazing grace, because the rescue mission wasn't to rescue those who were worthy or righteous. It was to rescue sinners who were in rebellion against their creator. And he, he did that work of redemption by giving up his body and his blood, not by climbing up into a sycamore tree, but ascending onto a different kind of tree a Roman cross where he shed his blood to atone for sinners that those who were lost might be found and that he might offer to us a meal symbolizing fellowship and communion and reconciliation with our Heavenly Father. There's a wonderful line in Mozart's Requiem that says, Remember, blessed Yesu, I am the cause of thy journey. 
came for us. He did this for you and for me. And that's amazing grace. And we should celebrate it. But again, we're probably only going to celebrate it depending on who we find ourselves to be in this text. Where do you find yourself in this story of Zacchaeus? Maybe you're Zacchaeus. Maybe you're here this morning and you're lost, but you've heard of the one who brings redemption and forgiveness and new life. But maybe your glimpse of Jesus has been obscured by a secular society that distorts the truth of God and of his grace. Or maybe it's been obscured by a self-righteous church that's devoid of grace and seems harsh and punitive toward your past and toward the struggles that you have. But listen to what Jesus says. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. People just like you. It's the reason that he came. And he knows your name. Just like he knew Zacchaeus' name, he knows your name and he'll enter not only your home, he'll enter your heart with welcoming, forgiving, transforming grace. Look to him in faith as your Savior and know his amazing grace and say today salvation has come to my house because of Jesus. Maybe you need to admit that you're someone in opposition to amazing grace though, at least sometimes. Maybe you've forgotten that you once were lost and you've become stingy and uncharitable toward sinners out there. And if that's the case, then we need to repent. And we all need to ask ourselves, what do people hear and see and learn about amazing grace by knowing us and interacting with us face-to-face and online? What do they encounter about amazing grace from knowing us? It's true that we can't be Jesus in the text. (laughs) You know, where am I in the text? I'm Jesus. Only Jesus can perform an operation of amazing grace that transforms a life and gives a new heart. But we can join his mission, not by performing an operation, but by offering amazing grace to the lost in his name. Now, how exactly we do that, I would not suggest is easy at all. There's no right formula for that. I mean, after all, keep in mind that Jesus approaches the searching Zacchaeus differently than he does the self-righteous rich young ruler and the woman at the well who is covered in shame and the religious leaders of his day that opposed him. He approached all of them differently. And so we should think creatively and and be prayerful about how we offer amazing grace in the name of Jesus to people where they're at. But let's consider just one example here as we close, and that's the example of Dan Caffey. Dan Caffey is the COO of Chick-fil-A. Many of you probably know he's a committed Christian, so you think it's your obligation to eat there, probably. Um, I don't actually think that, but that's beside the point. He's a committed Christian. Because of that, he's taken a strong stand against same-sex marriage. And as, as a result, it's created tension with the LGBTQ plus um, community, including a guy by the name of Shane Windemeyer. Shane Windemeyer is an activist for an LGBTQ plus organization of college students called Campus Pride. And at the height of the tension between Chick-fil-A and Campus Pride in 2012, Dan Cathy did the unexpected, and he reached out to Shane Windemeyer by phone. And as a result of this step of grace, the dialogue actually struck up a friendship between the two. 
Dan Cathy invited Shane Windermere to be his personal guest at the 2012 Chick-fil-A Bowl football game on New Year's Day. Chick-fil-A actually stopped supporting certain organizations that Windermere found particularly offensive, and Campus Pride suspended its campaign against Chick-fil-A as a result. I don't know if Shane Windermere has become a Christian. I don't know if he will become a Christian, but he's encountered grace through someone who himself is an object of amazing grace, who's experienced an operation of amazing grace. And so we, as also objects of the amazing grace of Jesus, as recipients of an operation of amazing grace in our hearts, we also can stand in opposition to sin, like Kathy continues to do. We can stand in opposition to sin and offer welcoming, forgiving, transforming grace to the lost in Jesus' name because the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost.